Fika with Anika. The word fika is used as both a noun and a verb and is derived from the Swedish word for coffee. The Swedish coffee break is a moment to literally leave work behind. Taken at three in the afternoon, it's not a strategy for multitasking or for fitting in another mini meeting. It's a chance to relax in the company of colleagues or friends. The key is to pause your day. So brew up some coffee, grab a seat, and embrace Fika. I'd like to introduce my guest, Tim Lauritsen. Tim is a longtime resident of the Anza Valley and hails from a family of 1950s homesteaders. He is known for growing native plants, building in a sustainable style, his volunteer work with the community, and his artistic talents. He also has hiked probably more trails than most. Welcome, Tim Lauridson. Okay, so to kind of summarize for those who might have missed some of the earlier broadcasts, we started um, down in Bregos, exploring the side canyons from Coyote Canyon, and uh, then took the Pacific Crest Trail and side trails around the area. Went on up to Mount Whitney, almost, and uh, probably mentioned uh, my adventures in the Cascades, or have I? Have we talked on the Cascades? And maybe I should no, you didn't share that, yes. Um, I hipped and hopped, or I should say skipped, the trail to central Washington in 1987 after meeting a man from Manhattan Beach, Bob Hotel, who I understand at the age of 90 is heading south on the Pacific Crest Trail. But back in the mid 80s, he retired from teaching. Uh, he was a, <clears throat> a cross country coach, high school teacher. And he decided to run the trail from Mexico to Canada. And he came through Anza and I met him at Rudy's Cafe one morning and on his day rest from Camp Anza Campground. And then reconnected with him at Jan's Red Kettle in Idlewild when he had come back the second summer of 1986 to run from Lassen Peak, where he had reached the first summer, to, into Oregon. But I ran, or I should say hiked with his running, through the northern reaches of the Cascades in 1987. In chance meeting with him the two summers before, or two springs, when he was rerunning sections, he did the whole trail in three summers. Um, a fascinating man, totally inspirational, spent his whole life encouraging people to get on the trail and cover ground. So I met him on the trail in a very secluded area of the Cascades, just north of Stevens Pass, about the midpoint of the state of Washington. Now we're talking, the trail travels about 4,000 feet. It climbs and drops, of course, around the mountains, 
uh, which uh, still had glaciers then. So there were a number of crossings of rampaging waters that could sweep anybody away very quickly if the trail bridge was gone. When you got there, you needed a rope. You had to have some uh, skill to tie and, and untie to get across and then pull your rope back for the next crossing. Uh, only one of a major bridge had been taken out by an avalanche on Glacier Peak. But for the most part, it is a rainforest on the west flank of the ridge, the crest, uh, facing the Pacific, but becomes quite steep and rocky, much like the Sierra Nevadas on the east side. So there were places where I would get up at the crack of dawn, strap on my big leather boots and my backpack, and take off and walk 25, 35 miles a day which was what Bob Hotel would run with tennis shoes, t-shirt, and fanny pack. So I helped carry his equipment, but his organizing had taken place for years in advance, and every trailhead some hundreds of miles to get to. Remember, the Cascades are very much wider than the Sierra Nevadas, so the, the um, organizing of getting new shoes and new equipment every four or five days with runners who would come in and meet um, Bob on the trail and would last a day or two. So I would often go on ahead the third day with some of his equipment, tarp, um, jacket, something heavy that he wouldn't necessarily use. He had a trash bag for a jacket, and if it got too cold, he'd get up and run. Um, I don't think I remember him wearing much more than a pair of running shorts, tennies, and uh, tank top, even through the snows of the Cascades. But keep in mind, the trail was built to get around the snows, whereas in the Sierra Nevadas last year and this year, 2019, it is a major issue because we've had extensive amounts of snow. I'm just impressed. Was he like an Ironman triathlon type person? Or? Well, certainly lean for his age, uh, but uh, his endurance and his conditioning had been for 40 years. Some people give themselves 40 days to condition for a wilderness adventure and see how far they get. This man has kept himself in tip-top shape to be able to run the trail at the age of 90. And I have crossed paths with those in their 90s who you would think were probably in their early 70s, but have spent many, many hours and miles on the trail growing younger. The reason I say one grows younger on the trail is first off, what you're smelling and seeing and hearing is total nature. I'm reminded what John Muir said. You climb the mountains and get their good tidings. Nature's peace will flow into you 
and the storms their energy, while cares will drop away like autumn leaves. When you're on the trail, you're concentrating on the trail tread and the view. So your mind is not occupied with all the rubbish that you've left behind in personalities and conflicts. And you become yourself with nature, in nature. And all of the BS disappears. There's a certain element of survival and security that you're also occupied with. If you have good equipment and good planning like Bob Hotel did, he was able to do what he did, but he had to have hundreds of people to back him up. And that was organizing, and it took years. As did his writing the book about the adventure, Soul, Sweat, and Survival of the PCT. It took the same audacity of him to write and force the publication of his book. Uh, many people have these blogs nowadays and videos and high-tech stuff that makes it so quick and easy. But you got to remember, in wilderness, a miracle can happen in just 15 minutes. An example is where peaks nearby turn a luminescent yellow then to a burnt orange, to a majestic lavender, and into an alpine glow for a slate gray evening. We look at sunsets, horizons, and think they're spectacular. But when you're living in the sunset that starts in your camp and follows right out of camp up onto the peak, you are part of nature. We're here in domesticity, domestic, looking out at, living in spite of it. So there's a whole different point of view that becomes part of the concept of hiking through. Now, not all of that is needed if you're just going for a day hike with a fanny pack or an overnighter with plenty of equipment and food. You've got your security with you. There's no real question mark. She figured it all out. But the real adventure is a spontaneity of making do with what you have at that moment in time. And we, on the trail, soon discover that it doesn't take very much. It takes a little bit of food and water if you can't find it on the way with a filter. The rest is fresh air and sunlight, which energizes the body. And in camp, people take their shoes off and walk around barefoot to rest their feet, which provides minerals and vitamins into the skin through osmosis and feeds the body. We just recently discovered how the birds do the same by knowing instinctually which plants to eat because of a certain ailment they might have. They don't know it intellectually, but their immune systems must work for them and the plant kingdom works for them, just as it does for us. 
a lot of people who are on medications are locked into this medical profession that has us believe we must stay close to the doctor in case of the post-nasal drip or anything more than that. But out in the wilderness, that disappears and we return to what it was just a hundred years ago before the medical profession when home remedies and herbs healed us. Boy, have we lost that. We need to get back to that one because of the cost of medications and so many people who had uh, bad reactions. Right, from... so I just wanted to make mention because uh, as you were just describing about being one with the uh, the sunrise and the sunset, yes. you know, we're so used to sitting in front of our devices. We sit on the couch, we watch a television and we're, we're living other people's adventures through a screen mm -hmm. and, and everything that we do is, you know, you need to have a screen in front of yourself. And so to actually feel that you're part of nature must be just it's, exhilarating. It is. It's, it's humbling. It's magical at times. Tears of joy. Lots of smiles and many friendly people who would love to share the trail information. I met two women in the Cascades who were hiking with six llamas. And I got a chance to hike with one of the girls. They were headed south. I was, ho I was going north. And being a horseman, I was able to tell them the best camping spot for their llamas. I would just heard that you said llamas. Yes. They were using them as pack animals? Yes. Okay. Uh, it was interesting because I saw them coming for quite a number of miles. I had come over Fire Creek Ridge uh, over on the west flank and could see quite a ways where the trail switched back on north. And as I headed south, I saw this line of red. And I went, oh God, where are all these people coming from? But it turned out to be six llamas with red leather packs on them. Oh. And what had happened was one of the tent poles had fallen out of one of the packs. And they had noticed when we stopped to talk. I had told them I was a horseman and that if you went a little further up and hung a left, you'd find good grazing closed in by rock ridges. It's perfect camping for six llamas. And they were much appreciated, but one of them followed me as I continued north until we came across her tent pole in the trail. And then she turned around and went back to camp with it. <laughs> and I kept going north. And that evening, um, I made a makeshift against a rock face. All I had was a plastic tarp and rope that I counterweighted off the rock. And I built a small campfire and soon fell asleep but woke up to the first big drops of rain hitting the ashes in the fire, spinning. I, um, I jumped out of my bag and put up the tarp and went back to bed and next morning continued on my way at no problem. 
wondering how those two girls had been thankful they had gone back and gotten the tent pole so they could stay dry in their tent. Remember I shared a, an event attempt on Mount Whitney chased back by a hurricane-like monsoon into a tube tent? Yes. You I always have that. plastics. Now in the Cascades, plastic bags slipped over your feet work better than just about any other kind of footwear, and yet it's very lightweight and inexpensive. What, are you talking inside your hiking boots? Or? Yes, yes, because your boots or tennis shoes or whatever it is you choose are going to become sopping wet. All of the brambles and flowers and grasses are going to get wet and hang down into the trail. And there's just no way you're going to walk through that trail when the water is heavy on all the brambles either side of you. So plastic bags are essential and ropes to get across water crossings. Trail bridges were anything from a simple log to a structured bridge that would provide horse and carriage. There was a cascade trail there just as here in California we had in our local mountains the Sam Fink Trail before the Pacific Crest was built only back in the early 80s. Well, it started being built in the 60s, but in our local area it was built in 1980 to about 1985 when Anza was booming. You're listening to KOYTLP 97.1 Anza. Trails rejuvenate mind, body, and soul. Have you ever had one of those days, can't relax, can't focus, and just keep ruminating about all the things you feel are wrong with the world? Well, that's where trails can be a lifesaver. Getting out on a rural trail is a great way to reduce stress. Whether by walking, mountain biking, or horseback riding, being out on a trail can help you focus on the present and the positive. Research studies suggest that there is a correlation between hiking in a rural, natural environment and a sense of well-being. Getting out on trails is a way for individuals to disconnect and focus on the now. Once on a trail, you begin to engage with nature. You start to use your senses of hearing, smell, and sight. This opens your mind to a more relaxed state in which you can look at things from a different perspective. When on a trail with friends or family, you are given the opportunity to engage in real-time encounters, building sustained, meaningful relationships. Trails give people the opportunity to become healthier or test their resilience and build the confidence to go further distances. Trails rejuvenate. Anza Area Trail Town, AATT, is promoting trails with its second national Trails Day celebration on June 1st at the Anza Lions Miners Horse Arena on Kirby Road. 
This year's event, Trails Rejuvenate Mind, Body, and Soul, will feature a hike, mountain bike ride, and horseback ride on a portion of the Juan Batista de Anza National Historic Trail. Registration begins at 7.30 a.m., with participants beginning the approximately 4K hike at 8.45 a.m. AATT will be fundraising by selling commemorative t-shirts, a membership drive, as well as volunteers and donations to continue the work to purchase easements and build trails in the local communities of Anza, Awanga, Tewilliger, and others. The event will also include raffle prizes and information booths on trails. The Anza Lions Club will have breakfast available. Proceeds from the breakfast will benefit the Anza Lions Club. To register for the event, you can go to www.anzaareatrailtown.com forward slash events. To request booth space, become a sponsor, or to donate, contact the email address info at anzaareatrailtown.org or Allison Rank can be reached by phone at 951-663-5452. Happy trails! With all the rain our local area has had lately, please be aware that there will be a lot of insects out this year. One insect that is already out is the tick. Ticks are blood-eating parasites that live and feed on mammals, birds, and reptiles. When out working or hiking in brush areas, please be aware of ways to keep ticks off yourself. Stay on designated pathways and wide trails. Use insect repellent. Wear light-colored clothing with long sleeves. Avoid grassy and brushy areas. Frequently check your clothing for ticks. When you come back indoors, check your clothes for ticks. If you find a tick on yourself, the National Center for Disease Control and Prevention recommends removing ticks by grabbing them with tweezers as close as possible to the tick's head and pulling out steadily and firmly. For more information, go to www.sandiegocounty.gov. Welcome back to Pika with Anika. Anyway, back in the Cascades, the snows and glaciers presented um, a force of energy that you don't have in the south. In the south, it's dehydration. In the north, it's drowning. Right. So ropes and knots and the means in which to bypass a bridge that's gone are essential. There are a lot of rules of the road or the rules of the trail there that don't apply elsewhere. So 
doing it in segments is the best success. You can't possibly carry enough food and equipment to do this 2,900 mile hike and often having to hike 100 miles out for provisions on a day rest from progress on the trail because in the Cascades they're 100 miles or more wide and so trailheads are quite a distance away. The Sierra Nevadas have four or five highways that cross over the trail and provide a means in which to get to for provisions or a hot shower. So uh, I leapfrogged the trail for Bob Hotel and he completed. I stopped at a family ranch in Manson just a couple of days hike south from the the border to Canada. I had worn my heels raw using leather mountaineering boots. I had forgotten to bring those plastic bags. So um, he completed and wrote the book um, and is now apparently doing it again at 90. So the idea of getting on a trail can extend your life span. It's getting back to nature for sure, but nature provides uh, some of the freshest oxygen in those mountains. No wonder so many creatures migrate to the Sierra Nevadas like the Jinko or the water oozel. Remember the water oozel was John Muir's favorite bird that walks under water looking for snails and algaes and things that it eats and it's stocky enough to withstand the lateral loads of a flow of or a creek or a river. I remember stealth camping which means away from established campgrounds where bears become familiar with and I would use a waterproof triple Ziploc bag that is set under the water with a rock on it so that there's no way a bear can smell your food. One of the first rules in the mountains where bears are is to protect yourself and your food because once the bear has your food it's his and you'll never get it back. And we evolved over the years from the 60s. I was a Boy Scout hiking the Sierras and they had gone from um, bear proof bags or your sleeping bag cover with a food in it tied on a rope up over a branch on a tree and then in the 70s we went to flagpole raising your your food bag up oh. after okay. after the bears would stake themselves out at the entrance to these giant bear conduit chain link fence gated locks that you could go into and leave your food at night and the bears would follow you in and chase you out and then take the food and then in the 90s they came up with 
bear-proof containers where it would require fingers inserted to rotate parts of the container to pull it apart so that you could put your food in. But the bear could still smell the food and he'd take your food and the container and you're still back with no food. So the bears have taught us, humans, how to behave with them, as does all the other animals, because they're there uh, visiting too. They're not there in the winter when it's under ice and snow. So we're all visiting and we're all trying to figure out how to get along. <laughs> That's part of the adventure. <laughs> of course. And everybody's teaching everyone <clears throat> their place. Um, have had scorpions and snakes uh, climb into bed. I've had deer um, scuff and knock at the tent door like a dog on a door to, you know, to wake you up and chase them off and so they have someone to play with. The deer were the biggest um, nuisance in Yosemite where they've learned for decades that their realm allows them freedom. Uh, people are only visiting and they're not allowed to feed or deal with the deer direct. But the deer have taken advantage of that rule and become... How so? By in camp, jumping over the tent, waking you up, scratching on their tent door. I mean, it's, it's just, they're, they're a nuisance because they know there's, you know, activity if, if a human wakes up. Um, bears, on the other hand, were never really a problem. Uh, in the Cascades, you would see them more. Uh, the parks in the Sierras manage the bear populations and transport certain bears if they become too domesticized by humans who feed them. So, um, it kind of <clears throat> encourages the realization that you don't really need a lot well, of food. Well, like basics, right. you know, ener energy bars, uh, maybe granola and dried milk that you have water. I mean, I, I, I hiked for thousands of miles and never had an issue about hunger except one day when I ran out of food and I came down out of the northern reaches of the Yosemite, took five days, and by the time I got to Glen Ellen, that was on the Tahoe Yosemite hike southward from Meeks Bay and Tahoe to Tuolumne, and on the last day I had no food, but I shared how someone had abandoned the food bag four or five days earlier and left just the perfect amount of top ramen and stale peanut butter sandwiches for us to get into Tuolumne Meadows where I caught my ride. I see. So Tim, what do you know about like wild harvesting or, or foraging as you're going out there on your hikes? Is that something that, that you do then? or? Well, it's not so much something that you do, but it's really important to know if you have to. Again, your food bag can be removed from you, or you can you can lose it. I've a lot found a lot of water bottles and and items that are either tossed or forgotten. I found bags of coffee grounds waiting to be made at the fire camp. 
Uh, so people leave things intentionally sometimes for the next camper. Uh, but you're supposed to leave only prints and take only pictures. So you're not allowed to pick the raspberries or... Well, it's not so much allowed. If you're one with nature and there's a berry hanging on the bush and you know that it's edible, you're going to pick it. But if there's 20 people that go by every day, uh, the chance and the timing and the ripeness is pretty slim. You have to get off the trail to, to do brambles. Seeds for sure. Pine seeds at certain times of the year, usually in November or as late as April, can be gathered and added to granola. I did that. Um, You're talking pine nuts out pine of the nuts. pine cones. Yeah, out of the, yes. Mm. Um, and uh, certainly miners' lettuce and any greens, fresh, uh, are preferable to dried and canned or whatever choices you've made. I personally did uh, most of my pre-packing for each day of the adventure in Ziplocs for each day marked so that I would keep track and I would have oatmeal one morning and then a certain dinner that evening and then snacks through the day. And two out of two days out of the three weeks that I hiked the Tahu Yosemite 210-mile hike, uh, we supplemented uh, trout. And there's nothing better than to catch a fresh trout and run that slimy green algae on it and bake it on the stove, on the campfire, and eat it. The, the, the elements help flavor the meat of the fish. You're not there putting salt and pepper on it, but you, if you use the algae out of these ponds, it flavors through the skin. And there's, oh, I wouldn't eat any other kind of fish today uh, out of the Pacific Ocean, but out of the mountains, I would. Yeah. Oh, that sounds delicious. So, so there are, yes, there are times uh, in the summer, early summer, when you can harvest. Um, most people don't um, because you have to be careful and truly identify there are matching plants in nature that are often growing together for example, the stinging needle is the antidote to poison ivy. And stinging needle is edible if steamed. There's a lot of examples where you have to distinguish the difference. Now that's an easy difference because stinging needle is tuberous and seedy, tall on a dried stalk, whereas um, poison oak and poison ivies are vines and, and leafy. So so stinging needle is different than stinging nettle? I'm sorry, stinging nettle. Okay. All right. It feels like a stinging needle if you it, get into absolutely. it. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I know. I fell on a patch once and uh, I yeah. remember that but, vividly. Uh, anyway, I just make that as an example. So uh, to find native brambles and to supplement with canned tuna, by digging up onion is found. Uh, 
it's not a good practice because there's too many people in a given area that would decimate those particular plants. So it's not really done. Okay. Um, a good example of uh, of this is when Chris McCandless um, of back in let's see by John Krakauer's book um, where he went into the Cascade, he went up into Alaska and took a book to identify but misread the difference between a potato plant and another plant very similar and ate the wrong plant and it prevented him from being able to eat and he starved to death. So there are certain rules that one has to be educated about so that you don't get into trouble. Uh, fresh water has become more of an issue in recent years than in the past because of the concentration of visitors in a given line on the trails or camps near it. And the general rule is to stay 200 feet away from the edge of, a, of water uh, uh, when you made camp so that your ashes from camp or your uh, residuals uh, buried wouldn't if influence uh, the source of water where you would most likely camp. Uh, but water filters became important because of um, gerardia. This, you know, that gets into the intestine and eats you from the inside out. Bob Hotel had contracted that and he says you don't ever want to get it otherwise you're going to be inside of a outhouse for quite a while so um, but getting on the I never had any problems because I planned and packaged and sealed each meal before I left and on the Tahoe I delivered two boxes to two different locations so that everything that I needed was there waiting as long as I got to the box at the end of each week's hike then I could take my provisions and thereby save carrying all that excessive weight for the entire three weeks. I would only carry a week's worth of food and supplement with it. So food never is really an issue and fresh water has become an issue now because you need filters and you need well, back in the day it was iodine and simple filters. Now we have complex technology because uh, Guardia is microscopic. So is that in the streams? Yes. Oh, okay. it, it gets there through the feces of the animals and the people. Oh. Uh, so even the freshest, purest waters in the highest country of the regions near the trails and their camps along there are, are subject to, to this. That's why when I stealth camped, I would leave the areas and go off trail and get up in the headwaters and camp there and never had much problems with bears or mountain lions coming in camp. Uh, also, like I say, the waterproof bag, which is also waterproof to the water oozel who will come along and check out your bag and see what you got for tasty little morsels. Um, it's funny how to chase a bird off that's swimming under the water. 
<laughs> There's but, a visual for but you. But nature is full of these um, amazing creatures and conditions that uh, have created just an, um, a wonderful experience. So up in the Sierras, you're at 7,000 feet, whereas in the Cascades, you're more at 4,500 foot elevation for the Pacific Crest. Um, but above 7,500 feet is where this starkness, where animals and plants are on the edge of existence. So there is a security in knowing that we're only visiting for the view and on our way shortly thereafter. After all, the climb is worth the view and the descent and the sore muscles from that fighting gravity is worth it because it allows you to sleep just about anywhere <laughs> at night. <laughs> so um, I'd like to close with John Muir's um, calling out the sugar pine as the priests of the pine kingdom. Of course, he said things like happy mountain raindrops kissing the lips of lilies, which was a bit much for some people in his day. But I admire John Muir for what he did. I'm Scottish, he was, and I've shared some of the trails he created. I'm delighted to see he chased off the hooved locusts, the sheep that were stripping Tuolumne Meadows back before it became a state park and then and then a national park. So uh, get out and see it before it's worn out or dried up and enjoy. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for joining us for this week's Cup of Fika with Anika. Tune in Wednesdays at 3 p.m. and a replay on Sundays at 1 p.m. If you have any questions or comments for me or my guests, please send an email to programming at koyt971.org and put Fika in the subject line. Enjoy the rest of your day.